welcome back to What's Killing My Kale. This is Season 3, Episode 6, the second part of a two-part series on spotted wing drosophila. This podcast is co-hosted by Natalie Hoytel and myself, Annie Claude, two University of Minnesota horticulture extension educators working with fruit and vegetable producers. In this episode, we talk with Mary Rogers about SWD management, and she gives us an update on some of the organic research her group has been doing. You can definitely start here with us, but be sure to also go back and listen to part one, where I interview Gigi DiGiacomo. All right, uh, this is Annie Claude, Extension Educator at University of Minnesota for Fruit and Vegetable Production, and today I am interviewing Mary Rogers, who's a researcher at University of Minnesota studying spotted wing drosophila. Mary is with us here. Hi, Mary. Hi, Annie. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Awesome. So the last time we met was two years ago now already. Wow. <laughs> well, at least last time we met for the podcast. <laughs> so yeah, I, it, was, uh, it was hard to, for me to believe that it had been that long. So um, I'm, I'm sure that, yeah, I'm sure that we have a lot to catch up on as far as SWD and, you know, you and I have had meetings and attended meetings together and talked about SWD research. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to get our podcast audience up to speed on what you've been doing in your lab with your grad students and research assistants and where SWD research is kind of right now, because there are so many universities all working on this. Right. There are. Yeah. Um, so I think in the, a couple years ago, um, we, had, we were talking about um, research that we've been doing with exclusion netting and tunnels, yeah. uh, some of the work we've been doing with pruning and um, microclimate kind of habitat management and yeah. organic insecticide options. Mm-hmm. So I could provide some updates on those. Yeah, options. yeah that would be great. Um, basically the first question I was going to ask, so that would be a good transition is in a nutshell, what has changed since we talked last, um, what exciting new research has happened since then? Um, so we're still recommending, um, some of these same practices. So exclusion, uh, we're finding there's more evidence showing that it can still be very effective, um, if it's done right. So, um, when the netting is, um, is tight and secure and established early on and you're limiting the potential for flies to enter in when you're harvesting. So some growers are able to do this really very well, um, but it can, it can be a challenge, but we're still getting uh, reduced infestation levels um, with, with exclusion compared to open field trials. So, um, so that's good news. Mm -hmm. Um, With our research on selective pruning, uh, this was part of a multi-state study that, that I was involved with. And um, it was led by um, Dr. Kelly Hamby's lab in Maryland. And we were pruning, in Minnesota, we were pruning blueberries, but um, in Maryland, they had really pretty promising results for pruning um, in raspberries. So uh, the selective pruning kind of removes the the canes growing in the interior of the canopy. And so it, it changes the microclimate or the microhabitat for the flies, so it lets more light in. Um, it increases uh, sort of the light penetration and the temperature, and it alters the humidity. So it makes it a less favorable habitat for the flies in general. So basically, they found that fruit in the interior was more likely to be infested and was infested at a greater level than than fruit on the exterior of the plant. Although it didn't prevent infestation completely, but it was just 
one of those things that we can do um, to help um, to help reduce um, the habitat, the habitat for flies. Uh, and so uh, there's other research too. I'm looking at how increasing that um, airflow within the within the canopy can also improve spray penetration and allow for better coverage, which would potentially further reduce infestation. So, uh, and, and with our blueberry research, what we found was um, in the second year of the pruning data, we were, we were looking at, we were pruning Jersey blueberries. And that what it did was the pruning um, kind of bumped up the harvest. <laughs> so we had fewer but larger berries. So, so it improved the quality of, of the berries and it tightened up that harvest window um, earlier in the season so that uh, there's maybe sort of a phenological um, advantage there. So the, the berries are ripening before SWD really hit peak population levels in the field. So that was, that was an advantage. So it's, it's, uh, it's a good cultural practice um, for SWD and I think horticulturally <laughs> anyway. It's, it's always nice to get in there every once in a while and, and remove some old um, canes and uh, reinvigorate the, the plants. Is there a place online where um, growers can find like the specific information that came out of this project? Like, is there a place they can figure out, okay, how much more should I be pruning yeah. or what are some uh, techniques for extra pruning? That, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, we don't have anything Minnesota specific. We could maybe develop <laughs> something. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, Oregon State University has put out a lot of really nice extension fact sheets just in the last couple months um, reporting on a lot of the, the pruning work. Um, they also have um, done some studies with looking at irrigation. So um, overhead irrigation being more supportive of spotted wing Drosophila population development rather than drip tape, which we which is good news because you know we're pushing drip tape anyway for water conservation. Um, so a lot of those cultural management um, recommendations can be um, accessible um, on the Oregon State University Extension webpage. So I can I can share those links and things with you. That would be awesome. And then on um, the website where we host this podcast, we can include those links so that people can look at them. Great. Yeah, that, that would be perfect. Um, so we also uh, in this podcast recording, I talked to Gigi. And one of the things we were talking about was frequent harvesting of berries mm -hmm. and how that's something that a lot of growers are, are doing that in order to manage SWD. That was revealed in her survey work is one of the most common management practices. And so for those listening, you know, the idea behind this is to pick the berries before SWD gets a chance to infect them. And if the berries do get infected, to harvest them before the eggs turn into larvae and start to impact fruit quality. So is there much research backing this up or is this something that growers are just kind of doing intuitively? Well, um, it, it is intuitive and, and there is research um, backing it up. So one of the studies that comes to mind is by Heather Leach. She's from Dr. Rufus Isaac's lab at Michigan State University. Um, and they published a study uh, in raspberries that showed that when they increased their harvest frequency every one to two days, um, they, it resulted in fewer spotted wing larvae than a three-day picking schedule. And it also maximized yield. <laughs> so they, they were getting uh, more higher quality fruit, less of it was infested. 
um, it took more time. Of course, there's that trade-off, right, of time and labor. So mm-hmm. that really, this is going to be something that um, we really need to consider with spotted wing management um, as we adapt to this as being, as being the new normal, <laughs> is maybe smaller plantings, more intensively managed. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it is a good strategy, it's, uh, particularly with raspberries, which can ripen very quickly on the plant. Yep. Absolutely. And one thing she was saying that I thought was interesting is that, you know, pick your own farms. They're often having people out there picking every day or every other day anyway. And so it was just such a standard practice. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a great strategy for, for those kind of marketing um, systems and also having customers um, <clears throat> separate out or pick even the, the, the call kind of berries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and getting those out of the field can help too. And so I know some of the pick your own growers have been doing that as well. Yep. And when people have uh, employees out there picking too, they can absolutely bring out a bucket for good berries and a bucket for bad berries. Well, not a bucket for good berries, but you know, <laughs> a bucket for bad berries at least. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned exclusion netting at the beginning of this. And so I really wanted to dive into that as well. Um, so this includes you know putting exclusion netting on the sides of high tunnels as well as some farmers who are starting to construct entire exclusion structures Mm -hmm. um i know this is a promising but of course complicated option for swd that seems like it it's still in the works it still needs more research and probably more growers to start doing this um, to demonstrate the tactics so that other growers can learn from them so from your viewpoint where has this research gone since we last talked about it in 2018 uh, yeah, so we have uh, more years of data and there's other um, researchers, researchers who have been looking at this. So um, folks who come to mind, Rufus Isaacs Lab at Michigan State um, and Greg Loeb at Cornell University. Um, so we know exclusion can work. Um, one of the things that we were interested in studying here is the mechanism. So we were interested in whether it's the physical exclusion alone that keeps the flies out, or whether or not there's some kind of microclimate factor that was uh, kind of prohibiting the flies from thriving in the Mm. the tunnel, because we know tunnel environments can be hotter, sometimes Mm. they can be drier, and so um, those factors might influence how the spotted wing flies develop within that that control environment. Um, Since then, we've found that, um, no, it is physical exclusion. (laughs) That is the the main mechanism, and so knowing that, we know now we can better refine our recommendations on um, exclude early before there's ripe fruit present. Uh, this can be, uh, this is really important with primocane bearing raspberries. Um, as we've seen, sometimes you get some straggler floricanes producing fruit early, and then that acts as a reservoir if you don't catch them and you're excluding, um, you're, you're implementing your exclusion after the SW. SWD has already kind of colonized those plants. And in essence, then they can kind of thrive inside the tunnel. Um, they are mobile. We know that they're, um, they, they're more, most active at dawn and dusk and that they like to be where it's kind of cool and, and humid. So kind of the lower parts of the canopy and inside the canopy. So they can escape these really hot um, temperatures in the midday um, that um, are experienced in the high tunnels. So, um, with exclusion, it's all about um, keeping the flies out. And a grower that's been doing this really well is Dale Isla Riggs from the very mm-hmm. um, 
in, in New York. And I think she, she has really inspiring stories that, um, of how she's making it work on her farm. And, um, and it's been increasing. She has almost 0% infestation without chemicals, which is really promising, especially for folks who, who don't want to spray or doing pick your own and um, are, are certified organic. So for anybody who didn't catch that name, that's Dale Isla Riggs at the Berry Patch Farm in New York. Um, and she also sells the exclusion netting too. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah, she does. Yeah, so she's really well informed about products and how to construct these exclusion structures too. So you mentioned uh, the exclusion needs to be put up before the fruits start getting ripe, but logistically, when do you feel that people should be putting up their exclusion netting during the season? I've had, you know, questions from growers about, um, well, you know, this is a challenge for pollinators, of course. Many people who use exclusion netting have to have pollinators inside their exclusion. Um, so they think, well, is there a way to get around that? Could I let pollinators come in and pollinate everything and then put the exclusion up after that? What is your opinion on that? Yeah, so this was a question that we had as well. So, and it's different um, depending on what crop you're growing. Where you're growing. So uh, blueberries, absolutely, you need to introduce um, pollinators and Dale uh, Isla has been buying, I think, bumblebee pollinators and, and um, putting them in under her protective structures. For raspberries, um, yeah. So uh, we, we, we did some preliminary studies on introducing bumblebees in these small research grade kind of tunnels, and we found zero benefit. <laughs> okay. So raspberries, we know, um, they can be wind pollinated and they can self-pollinate but they also benefit from cross-pollination, from bee pollination. So um, you're, you're, I, I would say you're safer in releasing bumblebees under these, under these nettings. Hmm. Well, and I wouldn't wait. I would put the netting up early um, when your plants are still flowering, mm -hmm. um, keeping the bees under there and letting them do the pollination um, as it right. Unfortunately, um, this is on the radar of people who sell bees. And so I have had people approach me um, and say, hey, you know, let your customers know if, if they're looking for pollinators, we've got them. So, um, you know, for, for people who are listening, we can't endorse anyone, but, but there are, you know, this is on the radar of people who are selling pollinators. And so you, this is a service that is available and you should be able to find yeah, Biovest is one of the companies. Copper also sells them, I think. So there's a few different, you want to find, a, you know, a, um, a reputable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so the other topic that's hot right now that I want to make sure we talk about is the use of essential oils for SWD. Um, another term that's used for this, of course, is the push-pull method, or at least maybe the push method or repellent method. Um, so this was a hot topic among some of the growers that I talked to through the conference circuit this winter when I was out giving talks on SWD. One grower I spoke with swears by it, and he uh, he uses an essential oil product called Ecotrol uh, mm -hmm. all season and rotates it with and trust. So can you comment on the application of essential oil products and, and where the research is with this? Yeah, so um, we, uh, last year, uh, Matt Gullickson in my lab um, was hearing from some of the growers that they were using these and they had really great anecdotal experience um, with some of these products. And so we decided to, to take them into the lab and look at um, repellent, potential repellent effects 
<clears throat> and so he found really promising results in his lab studies where flies, um, they would not go into diet, <laughs> into their diet, which, was, which is an attractant, um, if there was um, you know, droplets of some of these essential oils on filter paper in those vials. Um, so there was a clear um, avoidant, a kind of a repellent effect in the lab. So the next step was to, trans was to take that and translate it into the field. Um, and he found, so the results were, um, were a little less compelling, but we did see really promising results with the Equitrol Plus. And so this product, it's, it's organic certified. It contains rosemary, um, geraniol, and peppermint oil. And the flies just don't seem to like it. <laughs> um, so I, his berries... They had equal amounts of infestation to that of Entrust, which is currently sort of the, the standard. Um, it's a spinosad-based product um, that most of, that's the most effective product that we have right now for spotted wing and um, one of the only things that's really working. So, so it, it was really promising to see that our Ecotrol Plus performance was similar to that as Entrust. So it doesn't kill, the, the benefit of these things is they don't kill the flies, which, which is great from a resistance management mm -hmm. standpoint, um, it just prevents them from laying eggs in the fruit. Um, I think the tricky part of this now is going to be how long do those volatile organic compounds persist in the field? What is the residual? And, and, and we think that it's, they're not going to last very long, which would mean constant repeat spraying, um, which is going to then take time and, and, and increase, um, the financial cost. Uh, so I think what would be exciting new research is looking at ways that we can keep these things longer in the field. There's been some other researchers, uh, Dr. Julie Carrillo at University of British Columbia was looking at interplanting peppermint um, in between raspberry rose and um, getting a little bit of, of mixed results, but it's, it's something that I think we could keep pursuing. Uh, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that um, of of repellents, and it's it could be just one more tool, kind of in the in the toolbox for spotted wing, okay. and really help us prevent that resistant them becoming resistant to pesticides. Do you know what the relative risk is of resistance to spinosad or entrust and other? Right, ways? it's it's something we're really really concerned about. Um, as I mentioned, it's one of those few products that actually really does work. <laughs> and so yeah. there's a really high selective pressure um, of using it um, to, to manage spotted wing drosophilus. So we, there is resistant populations reported in California. Of course, they're a major fruit producing state and the selective pressure is extreme there. But um, these flies are mobile, they move around. Um, we, we have growers here in Minnesota, a, a lot of people are using spinosad. Um, we just want to keep be able to keep this as a tool for as long as we can. And uh, to that end, we have to find other products that are effective that we can rotate with mm -hmm. or other practices that don't involve um, uh, toxicants and killing the flies. Yeah, absolutely. What sorts of things would you have to learn about, uh, let's say, Ecotrol, for example, the essential oil products, um, before we start recommending it to growers? I think we need more data. We really just have had one season of, yeah. of, of data that looked good. Uh, I think, and this was in raspberries. So this is, it was promising because raspberries are, um, 
are so much more susceptible to spotted wing damage compared to, to compared to blueberries. So if, if something works in that crop, it, it, it's very kind of exciting. So we need more data. Um, we need to know, um, it would be great to know if we can, if down the line we could formulate something that could, could make these products work a little longer. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to be very rain fast, of course. And so, um, and most of the organic pesticides have a very short residual, which can be kind of a double-edged sword because as consumers, we don't want pesticide residues <laughs> on our crop, mm -hmm. um, but this just means they don't last very long and have to be, have to be reapplied. So I think those are kind of um, some of the concerns. I think there's a lot of, uh, it'd be interesting to look at how these things do in a controlled environment too. So it's such as a tunnel setting because uh, maybe potentially the volatiles will last longer. Mm -hmm. and maybe they can work better in sort of in those settings versus um, in the open field. So those could be potential research directions. Okay. All right. So another uh, type of research around SWD is, of course, biocontrol. And the last time we did a podcast episode in 2018, you said your lab was interested in potentially researching biological control for SWD. I learned through the webinar that you participated in in early March with other SWD researchers from around the country, which was very informative, by the way. I'll try to share that link in the description. Oh, yeah. um, that there are biological control organisms in the approval pipeline that may be available at some point relatively soon. So could you comment on what some of these biocontrol products are? Right. Um, so one of the organisms or species that we're working with, it's a pupil parasitoid and it's called Pachycryporteus vendemii. And um, it's a tiny wasp that attacks, uh, that lays its eggs in spotted wing Drosophila pupae. Um, this particular parasitoid, it's not native to the U.S., but is currently present in much of the U.S. We don't know how it got here. It's, it's been found in Minnesota. We found it in the, um, you know, a pinned specimen in, in the insect collection in the Department of Entomology. So, so we know it's here. Um, what we were interested in looking at is how well this can, can work as a parasitoid or as part of an integrated pest management program. And specifically, I was looking at releases of these parasitoids in tunnels that can help further suppress, suppress flies. Um, we, we had really high pressure <laughs> in, our, in our experimental setup and we had high, also high levels of mortality of these parasitoids um, due to, um, uh, basically they were have the lab we were, that was rearing them was having problems with their colony. So our, our data isn't super strong. We're, we're doing more research with this. I think it could have potential as an augmentative biocontrol agent in programs where you're doing kind of controlled releases like you, like greenhouse growers would use, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's one direction we're looking at. And then there's Dr. Kent Daney. He's at the University of California in Berkeley, and he's really looking at um, more of a conservation biological control program, which involves importing uh, a natural enemy from another place. <laughs> so in this case, from Asia and, and China um, to, to the US to, to manage spotted wings. So he's looking at this, it's other, another parasitoid wasp species called Gnaspis brasiliensis. Uh, it's native to Asia, and it's a specialist on drosophilids. So it is very um, highly attuned to finding its host. It, it won't have, uh, there's not a lot of on-target effects on other organisms um, um, anticipated with this organism. 
but it's still, we're still in that regulatory phase <laughs> where there's permits and things you have to apply for um, in order to, um, you know, to make it commercially available and to release it. So it's pending regular, regulatory approval. Um, however, now they've found it in Canada. <laughs> so it's already sort of colonized um, in Canada. So maybe it's moving down here and it'll be here as well as, you know, maybe commercially available. So, so these are things that we're, we're looking at. Um, Biocontrol can certainly help reduce population pressures. It's going to be hard to just rely on biocontrol because, mm -hmm. you know, we know that this pest, it has zero threshold level and there's just um, the population levels are really high, but every little bit I think can help. Okay. And so I know that you're applying for more grant funding uh, to research SWD. Uh, you know, I'm excited to be involved in this research too on the extension side. So what are your research priorities for the next few years for SWD? Uh, we're really hoping to do more of the work with these volatile organic compounds and or the essential oils um, and developing that push-pull strategy that you were talking about earlier. So that, that entails um, an attractant to, to pull <laughs> the spotted wing away um, from the fruit crops um, while also applying some kind of a repellent on the fruit itself um, to, to push them. Um, so there's been some work, there's some interesting work with these products, um, splat or hook as it's now known, um, is, um, is an attractant that has a toxicant kind of built into it. So it's an attract and kill kind of product. Um, there's been some uh, I'm hoping to do some trials with that product in Minnesota this summer. And then there's also this food grade gummy that that's acting as an arrestant and, and um, colleagues at Oregon State University uh, from Dr. Von Walton's, Wal Walton's lab has have been looking at this. And so this product, um, the flies lay their eggs in this gummy and then the eggs are non-viable. So essentially they're dumping their eggs into this, um, into this gummy rather than into the fruit. Um, so those could be maybe used in combination with essential oils to maximize um, control and reduce infestation on fruit. So those are things that we're interested in. And then um, Gigi um, DiGiacomo, who is the research fellow in Applied Econ, she's really interested in looking at cost benefits of some of these different control, control strategies. Um, and assessing kind of the cost of different management programs and, and the costs that growers are incurring and what makes economic sense as far as, um, the, you know, making it work for the bottom line. So okay. those are some directions. Um, another direction, <clears throat> we're working with Dr. Bill Hutchison's lab in entomology. Um, Carrie Dean is a postdoc in there. And she's really interested in looking at um, Population genetics, finding out where these flies are coming from. Are they overwintering? Are they um, colonizing from other areas? And that's going to be really important from a basic understanding of how um, they get here and what we need to do um, to reduce overwintering populations if that's where they're, what they're doing. Yeah. And it sounds like that's something that you guys have been working on for a while too, right? They have, yeah. So my lab less directly. We're kind of more um, boots on the ground with the growers and looking at um, management strategies. But that basic biology component is, is, is really important. Yeah. Okay, so we've covered a lot in this <laughs> half an hour, which is great. Right. So, all right, before, before we do the last question, let's go through every, 
let's list everything we talked about. So we talked about exclusion netting yeah. and got an update on research around exclusion netting and it sounds promising so that's good um, now it's the growers job to figure out is that something that works for them and I think we really need to see more exclusion net setups demonstrated on growers farms yeah, in order for this to be adopted because it, it is something that is logistically challenging so I'm happy that we have at least one grower uh, Andy Petran who is putting up exclusion netting he actually used it last year um, and is going to be expanding on that this year so I'm really excited to see that um, I think people can reach out to Dale Isla Riggs at the berry patch in order to learn about the logistics around exclusion netting and um, she has a lot of really good case studies from growers who have used it who you know she might be able to send them photos and things to, to help them learn more about that I'm hoping that we can have field days around exclusion netting in Minnesota at some point soon. Um, yeah. So, so hopefully I, I can work with Andy or, or other folks on that. Um, we talked about selective pruning and um, pruning more extensively in order to create airflow through the canopy. So I was excited to hear about your research on that. Um, what else did we talk about? The push-pull method with essential oils. Um, we talked about biocontrol. So we've touched on a lot. And as growers are planning for this coming growing season, which will happen here soon, um, what do you think are three big things that berry growers should consider doing for SWD? And what are three things that they should not do? Okay, so um, growers need to remain vigilant on this, on this past, um, it's not going away. <laughs> it's kind of like readapting, right? So similar to what we all have to do right now with the COVID-19 um, crisis. But um, I, I think keep monitoring for larvae. So we're finding out that um, adult trapping, it's useful for detecting the first catch, but it's not a real practical use of time to monitor after that. So, okay. but, but looking at fruit, for sure, um, getting a sense of what your pressures, uh, your pressure level, what your pressure is in the fruit, and then making sort of decisions based on that. And then looking into varieties or cultivars that might ripen earlier to escape peak SWD infestation. So this usually have, we, we see big spikes in the population later on in the season. So fruit, fall bearing fruit is usually um, a lot heavier hit than, than some of the earlier um, varieties. And then I would definitely um, consider frequent picking. We know that that works. Um, and then maybe focusing your management, more intensive management on a smaller scale rather than larger plantings that you don't have time to maintain. And then um, implementing some of the exclusion practices. So those are, those, those are the things that we know um, work. Okay. Um, I would say don't, don't get discouraged <laughs> and stop growing fruit. Um, mm -hmm. There's demand there. Um, there's a lot of growers that have, uh, you know, been working with this, managing this pest and learning more every year. So it's been in Minnesota for, you know, five years now. And so there's, there's people that are, um, have, you know, just learned how to deal with it and, and manage it better. And, um, I think don't greatly expand your fruit production without having a management plan in place. Yes. <laughs> and start small. If you're just getting in, if you're a new beginning grower, start mm -hmm. small and kind of um, figure out your management strategy. Um, 
before expanding. Yeah. I wouldn't bother maintaining traps for adults season long. Okay. Um, I think lar focus your efforts on sampling for larvae and the fruit. And there's um, all sorts of resources on the, on the internet on how to, how to do larval sampling. Yeah. The salt yep. test method, the, the sugar test method. Mm -hmm. um, last one is use and trust or that spinosa based product, but don't overuse it. <laughs> Follow the label. Um, rotate with other things that are even, that are, you know, they may be less effective, but we really have to worry about keeping that product um, effective for as long as we can. Another one that I had for a don't do is don't leave a bunch of infected fruit in the field. Good one. Yes. <laughs> Get it out of there. Get it out of there. Yep. And then bag it up. Right. Yep. Yep. All right. So yeah, I think this is a great time um, before the season really gets kicked off for growers to think about what their plan is going to be for SWD so they don't find themselves middle of the season uh, SWDs at, at peak and just feeling overwhelmed and not knowing what to do. So I feel like if, if people can get a plan right. together now um, and a plan B and a plan C for how they're going to deal with this, I think uh, that's, it is going to be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mary. This is very, uh, very helpful for growers to be able to prepare for the season. And I so much appreciate the work that you're doing to research this pest and, and how to manage it organically. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.